Hello everybody, welcome to episode 4 of Harmonica Studio Podcast. My guest is Winslow Yorksa. Winslow is known in the harmonica community to be one of the best teacher and harmonica specialist. He has vast knowledge of the harmonica and just loves to share it. He plays diatonic and chromatic harmonica. He is also an arranger and composer. He lives in San Francisco and many people know him for his books Harmonica for Dummies and Blues Harmonica for Dummies. Before we start, I just wanted to mention that my new album New York Moments on Steeple Chase Records is out and you can listen to it on all streaming platforms and even in CD format. Okay, let's get back to the podcast and here is my conversation with Winslow. You wrote uh, two great uh, methods for uh, diatonic harmonica, uh, harmonica for dummies and blues harmonica for dummies. Mm -hmm. uh, what was the writing process behind um, harmonica for dummies? Well, it's a production line. Now, You know, the, the publisher, Wiley, they have hundreds of dummies titles. And when you're writing a book for them, it's not like they're publishing your great work. You are producing one of their titles. And they gives you four months. Well, you have to deliver one you, you have to deliver one quarter of the page count every month. And you're interacting you're with on the, the clock. Yes, oh very much on the clock, you know. I mean, there's this sort of romantic idea that if you write a book, well, you go down to Mexico and sit on the beach and write, you know, <laughs> in a pleasant circumstance that isn't very costly. Uh, but no, I mean, I was working a day job, coming home at night, writing, and then I'd take a nap, then get up and write some more, and then go to bed and go to work. And that was, you know, a very intense process. And you're using Microsoft Word, and where you can see all of the changes, you know, the track changes feature, and you can see, okay, what you wrote what the copy editor changed, what the project editor suggested, because you know, you're you working with two editors simultaneously. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and, and they have a, a very thorough style guide. This is a dummy's way of writing. There are certain mm -hmm. kinds of sentence structures you can't use. And they don't know uh, anything about the harmonica, I guess. No, they don't. But they also will have a, um, a technical editor. So that if you know if you're you're just blowing smoke and saying things that aren't true or you know advancing you know bad ideas, then that person will chime in and say, "Hold on, you know, this should be different." Or sometimes musical terms. Uh, frequently, I disagreed with the technical editor about musical terms. You know, my education is more classical; his is more folk. And sometimes folk musicians don't really understand why classical terms are the way they are, but I think they're the better terms. So, you know, every now and again, I would just ignore him. And they told me, you know, you can ignore this advice, but I always felt I had to justify, you know, so I would write these long mm. things about why this was right and that wasn't. So, I mean, that, and that's kind of took time away, but it wasn't a major factor, but it was just one more thing. And you have to keep a log of the illustrations. And I was generating all of the musical examples, you know, using finale with notation and then tab underneath. Um, and then they would have artists or we did a photo session with a local photographer, you know, so show, you know, holding it with your hands or, you know, various things like that. Later they started using um, 
um, artists who would actually make a line drawing instead of the photograph. Uh, so you've got all of that going on. And then four months are done, and you have delivered the complete manuscript. And now it's time to record audio. Hmm. And, uh, you know, they'll give you a budget for it. And then you have to use that budget wisely. And to a large extent, on the first two books, well, actually, on the very first book, I generated all of the audio basically through MIDI. You know, but I was very careful to write in such a way that I was using instrument patches that sounded like real instruments, like guitar and piano and bass. You know, nothing, you know, like saxophone patches tend to sound, you know, not very realistic, for instance. And, um, and then recorded the audio, the harmonica on top of that. And I was able to do all of that at home. When I did blues harmonica for dummies, I hired uh, Rusty Zinn, who's a guitarist who's very expert at accompanying blues harmonica players. And so he laid down one and sometimes two guitar tracks, you know, because I felt it was more important to have someone who could play in an authentic blues uh, guitar style. diatonic or chromatic harmonica? Um, I started with diatonic, but my, my mother saw I was interested in it and very soon said, uh, gee, we should get you a chromatic harmonica. You know, she knew what that was, and she had the idea that that was, you know, the real harmonica yeah. to get. So we went to the music store, and they didn't have any proper chromatics. They had the, the, the one with the slide that's tuned like a diatonic. Oh, yeah, the 10-hole uh, on a... Right, yeah, the, the, the Koch 980. And so we initially got that because it was available, but I quickly realized, okay, this isn't you know, a real chromatic harmonica in the sense of being fully chromatic through its range. And so uh, a few weeks later, I bought a 64. 64? You know, wow. Yeah. Usually uh, people start with a 12. <laughs> and maybe yeah. 14 and 16. Right. It must have been um, very uh, overwhelming to start on such a big harmonica. Well, it was, but initially I was playing, you know, that sort of tongue-blocked um, third-position blues style, which actually benefits from having that wide range because you've typically got four to five holes in your mouth. The low range works well with that, but I didn't really start playing it melodically until I got a 12-hole. Okay. You know, that, for me, opened up melody playing um, much more than the 64 did, and I still go back and forth between them. Where you are harmonica heroes at the time well well i mean i was listening to a lot of diatonic of course you know little walter big walter the sunny boys um you know sunny terry jimmy reed all of the classic blues players junior wells james cotton um and there was a little chromatic mixed in there of course you know little walter started that whole style um and there wasn't anybody to really listen to in jazz now there was larry adler you know, who can sound very bluesy, um, but disclaimed being a jazz musician. 
although he played yeah. you know, with jazz musicians, like he made those records with Django Reinhardt, but you hear him play repertoire that was in, in common with jazz musicians, because a lot of that music was also the popular music at the time, you know, in the 1930s and 40s. And then jazz and popular music kind of diverged at the beginning of the 1950s. Um, but if you listen to what he did, for instance, you know, with, with Django Reinhardt, you hear a vocabulary that has nothing to do with jazz, right? It's, it's very much Larry Adler. It's interesting to hear, but it is something that, you know, you would never call jazz. But he could play very bluesily, and he bent notes in a way that sounds almost like a diatonic. You know, he, I mean, he's in his own category as a musician. It wasn't really until I heard Toots that I realized, okay, that's the way to go. You know, this is, this is what is really working and sounding authentic and bringing something to the music, right? There's a problem that I think sometimes harmonica players face in that there's a lot of music to which harmonica is not native, right? I mean, blues and harmonica go very well together. The blues is native to the harmonica. You know, it, it's part of the birth of the blues. Um, and a lot of the blues idiom was developed on the diatonic harmonica. But there are many styles of music where harmonica just is not an element. And if you're going to add harmonica to it, then you have to think, okay, how can I do two things, both of which are important. One is, how do I adapt that music to the harmonica so that it comes out authentic and not just like sort of something that's like a, a trick, you know, like a little stunt. Um, and at the same time, what can harmonica bring to this music to enhance the music, to augment it, to bring it to be, uh, bring something to it it didn't have before that's still authentic. And, you know, that's always the difficulty. Uh, it's also the opportunity. And I sometimes hear harmonica players, like I, I went out to a, um, what was supposedly a blues jam a few weeks ago. It turned out to be mostly funk. And I would watch some of the other harmonica players on stage, and all of the other musicians were kind of turned away. They kind of turned their backs on the guy and just as if, okay, he's on stage with us, but you know, we don't really care to acknowledge him. And you could hear the guy playing and he was playing sort of, you know, blues stuff. And it didn't add anything to the music. It was just kind of noise that came alongside. And it was not that the guy was a bad player, but he didn't know how to contribute to that music. You know. And so anytime you want to bring harmonica into a style of music or an idiom, you know, you have to find your way into that idiom. You can't just bring what you got. Unless you got a whole lot of different stuff. <laughs> and Toots brought it. Because I'd heard people try to play jazz harmonica, and it sounded awkward. You know, Toots never sounded awkward. I mean, he's a guy who, well, of course, he played guitar as well. And if you listen to his very earliest recordings, where he sounds like a jazz musician, like from about 1946-47, he sounds like he's totally into bebop on guitar. If you hear his harmonica recordings from the same period, He's still having fun with the harmonica and not really trying to be a jazz musician. And he always had that side to him. You know, he liked to play a lot of different kinds of music and, and have fun with it. It isn't until 
and I, maybe, the, maybe there are other points that I haven't heard. But, you know, he did a tour with Benny Goodman in 1950. And Zoot Sims was also on that, that, that gig. And I forget, maybe some dead Jonas here or somebody. Um, and they went away and made a record in Paris while they were on tour with Benny. But, you know, not with Benny. And there's a recording of all the things you are. And, like, you know, Zoot plays the head. He plays a solo. And then Toots comes in and plays a solo. And it's 100% hmm. jazz harmonica. You know, it's like he's graduated into making the harmonica a jazz voice. Yeah, he did. He was the first. Yeah. 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 And, you know, but he was, he was, you know, he was just kind of bathing himself in Charlie Parker <laughs> with his head fully underwater, uh, you know, and, and Lester Young and lots of other people. You know, you can hear like... Um, uh, uh, Clifford Brown riffs and Miles Davis riffs, you know, in his playing throughout his career. You know, you can hear how he's absorbed those things and made them something that will come out of the harmonica in an authentic way. So, I mean, that's what harmonica players have as a task, is to absorb a style of music and then express it through the harmonica in a way that works with the physical aspects and the note layout of the harmonica and also properly express it yes, to music. That's right. If your goal is to play uh, bebop, you have to study the bebop music and the vocabulary, the, the history. You have to uh, transcribe solos from uh, Charlie Parker, Kenny Dorham, uh, uh, Miles Davis, Bud Powell, and all the, the masters. Yeah. If you would like to play uh, with a, mm -hmm. a funk band, Maybe you should uh, listen to some uh, Matthew Parker, James Brown, uh, Fred mm -hmm. Wesley, Bootsy Collins, uh, to get the, the feel, the yeah. straight eight notes, how to, uh, how to play you know, in that idiom. No? And so I know that uh, you are teaching uh, in San Francisco at mm -hmm. uh, a music school. Uh, well, yeah, we have a, the, the California Jazz Conservatory. And within that, they've got a thing called the Jazz School Community Music School. Originally, it was just the Jazz School, but then they got accreditation. So once they were academically accredited, they wanted a more dignified name. Mm -hmm. So now it's the California uh, Jazz Conservatory. They're in Berkeley, California, downtown Berkeley. Yeah, I think people are very lucky to have uh, such a great teacher as you. Oh, thank you. Uh, what um, is the biggest uh, mistakes uh, have you seen students make when first starting playing the harmonica? Well, two things. Now, of course, embouchure is fundamental. And very often people look at these tiny little holes, especially in a diatonic harmonica, and they think that to isolate the hole, they have to scrunt their, their lips up into this tight little formation with a tiny little hole. And that's a problem because one, with the, when the lips are formed like that, there's no way to get a, a seal because the lips aren't pliable. They're all kind of tensed up into that shape. And also, if the hole is too small, then you can't really move air easily in and out of the harmonica, and the, the note quality suffers. So first thing is to get people to relax their lips. The second thing, though, is that people tend to breathe to play a note. Then they'll stop breathing. They'll take the harmonica out of their mouth sometimes. Exactly. I look that at it all the time, every day. <laughs> so, 
you know, my advice is always keep the harmonica in your mouth and don't stop breathing. Breathe as you move because then you hear the results of your action, right? This is a blind instrument. You cannot see your hands on the keyboard or on the guitar, right? And your hands don't stay in the same place like they do with on, on a saxophone. You've got a sandwich in your mouth, you know, <laughs> and you're sliding it back and forth between your lips. So everything you learn is going to be muscle memory and ear together. If I do this, what will come out in sound, right? And then if you learn the music theory and structure on top of that, then you've got the complete combination of things that you need to really move forward. But yeah, that's the very first thing. Keep it in your mouth. Don't breathe through your nose. That's, that's leakage. You know, make it all go through the harmonica uh, to the extent possible. You know, breathe easily and deeply. You know, keep the throat open and the, the, the tongue out of the way. I mean, you might be tongue blocking, but the air can move freely. Yeah. I often will take a reed plate. I actually have one that I carry with me, and I'll pluck the, the reed. Right? And you can hear, okay, you can hear the note, but it's very soft. You can, it's, you can hardly hear it. You know, This is a quadruple pianissimo. Um, but then I put the reed plate up to my mouth and play the note as a draw note, and they hear how much louder it is. All right? And I point out that the harmonica is only the tip of the iceberg. Right, that's the part that you see and hear. In the case of the iceberg, and here in the case of the harmonica, but ninety percent of it is below the surface surface of the water. Right, ninety percent of the harmonica sound is inside your body. You know, your lungs—that's your organic hidden amplifier. Right, and your throat and your oral cavity and your tongue—those all play a huge role in shaping the sound. The harmonica is just the noisemaker you insert at the top of the system. Would you suggest to breathe in from the diaphragm? Absolutely. Now, there are times when you, if, if you're breathing very rapidly, you may need to breathe from higher up. Right? Toots actually, and you can see this in video, he talked about just moving air th from his mouth with his tongue, you know, where the tongue becomes kind of like a piston just to move a small amount of air. Uh, John Popper from Blues Traveler also uses this technique. And I remember trying it once or twice, and I always found that it would affect the pitch of the lower notes. But on the higher notes, it works quite well. Um, he did an interview in um, early 1970s with the Swedish uh, jazz violinist Sven Dasmussen. And it's in Swedish, but he frequently lapses into English. And he gestures enough that you know you don't need to speak Swedish to understand what's going on. And this was part of, I guess, when they were working together, they made that album, Yesterday and Today, in 73 or 74. And there's footage from a live gig that they play. Uh, but then they talk a lot about, about um, uh, jazz vocabulary and, and about technique. And Toots demonstrates this technique of just breathing with his mouth and playing some very rapid stuff. You know, he was a lifelong asthmatic. You know, he couldn't breathe you know, as fully as a lot of people could. Uh, now, I remember him telling me that he never missed a gig because of it, you know, because it would actually, it was a medical condition. Mm -hmm. And he actually traveled with a breathing device, um, you know, to help him kind of ease what, I don't, I'm not sure if there was inflammation in the lungs or, you know, I'm not sure what it involved. Um, but it just goes to show that you can play the harmonica with not very much breath. But in general, 
it's good to be breathing from the diaphragm because that tiny little reed really only makes a small amount of sound. What really makes a sound is two things. One is that mass of air moving from the bottom of your lungs, right? That has influence on that piece of metal in the harmonica, right? And even though if, if it's moving gently, it's still that same amount of mass. And that's what allows you to achieve a full tone, to bend notes, you know, to influence the behavior of the reed. Uh, and also to, you know, have a big sound and to sustain notes. I mean, the harmonica is like a singing instrument. You know, it's not a percussion instrument. That's one of the other things sometimes I have to point out to people. It's not like where you hit a snare drum with a stick and it makes a sound and then stops immediately. You can sustain a harmonica's tone for as long as you can keep breathing in one direction. Um, and again, it goes back to that thing of not stopping breathing between notes. You know, breathe, stop, look at the harmonica, find the next hole, you know, all of that stuff. And, you know, I point out to people, do I talk like this with each syllable separated? Or do I speak in a flow of syllables all on one breath? You know, and then people get it when they hear that. That. So, yeah, I mean, that's sort of the biggest beginner mistake. Sometimes it's breathing too hard or too softly, mm. you know, especially often women will be very sort of timid about, you know, fully breathing through the harmonica. Yeah, be careful, huh? Winslow. I know I'm being people careful. People are listening. I, I know people are listening, but it is a general truth. I know one has to be okay. sensitive to stereotyping people on right. gender or any other that. thing. But it is an observation, um, you know, uh, but breathing too softly or breathing too hard. And sometimes you get people coming from other instruments like, you know, trumpet or saxophone, where you need more breath to fill that big instrument. And I point out, you know, that a harmonica reed is smaller than a paper match in a chamber that's about the diameter of a pencil and only about two centimeters long. And that's the bigger reed chambers. You don't need a lot of breath to fill that space. You know, it's good to have all of the breath in your respiratory system moving, but moving gently. You know, breathe gently and deeply, and the harmonica will respond <laughs> with gratitude and beauty. <laughs> What uh, harmonica brands or models are you uh, playing these days? You know, I try everything, and we have a lot more choice than we once did. When I started playing, it was a honer world, almost entirely. You know, so you played a marine band or a blues, a blues harp. That was what was available in diatonics. You know, you played a 270 or a 280 for a chromatic. You mean in the 70s, 80s? Yeah, well, I started playing in 1968. 68, okay. <clears throat> so the blues harp was a relatively new model. And they represented it as something that bent notes more easily and all of these things. Basically, it was a marine band with different covers. But they did a great job of selling that idea. And if you wanted a 12-hole chromatic, well, they, they, they still made the 260, which was a fully chromatic instrument, but only had a two and a half octave range. So you could get a 10-hole chromatic in either oh, yeah. diatonic mm -hmm. tuning or in the standard um, solo tuning. You get a 12-hole um, 270 in you know, a variety of keys, or the 280 in C. 
So that was the world of what was available, along with bass harmonicas and chord harmonicas. And I bought a bass back then for all of $70. That was the going price in those days. That was, well, because the German currency was depressed for a long time after the Second World War. And then in the 1970s, it started climbing. I had to order that bass harmonica from Eastern Canada. And I got it for the $70 price. But while it was on order, the price tripled to $210. Right now, you can't touch a new bass harmonica under $1,000. Um, but it was a whole new world. Do you still have it? I still have it, and I still play it. Wow. And it's still After, a good instrument. Uh, 40 years. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible. It's, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, unless you play really hard, you're not going to damage a bass harmonica. Yeah, it's not like an instrument that you will play maybe every day you know, on occasions, I guess. Yeah, and there's a, there's a local harmonica group where I'm sometimes the bass player, and that's fun to do. Um, but I don't play it a lot. Now, in terms of brands, I mean, nowadays, I mean, okay, so for a long time, Honer was bit. And then um, the company was bought and sold a few times, and quality went down for several years. And so you had Lee Oscar stepping in to produce diatonics, you know, and a lot of people said, wow, this is a decent harmonica. And Chamber Wong and his brother Frank left Honer and started their own company. And they were getting what Chinese product they could, which was sort of good, but, you know, you needed to do some work to make it actually playable. And it's funny, Norton Buffalo, you know, who lived around here, uh, played Wong harmonicas, and he was, would say, oh, well, there's nothing wrong that you can't fix, you know, fairly easily in a new harmonica. Well, you know, if you're, if, if you're good at fixing harmonicas, that's fine. Most people are not. You want something that works out of the box, and just about every manufacturer, with the possible exception of Suzuki, you will buy a harmonica, and sometimes there is something that's really unplayable about it. You know, a reed that's misaligned, or a valve that's, mm. you know, damaged, or something, or one note badly out of tune, that, you know, if you know how to fix things, fine. It's easy to, to do. <clears throat> but just about every manufacturer lets the occasional problem slip through quality control. Um, and what we're seeing now is manufacturers from Asia getting much, much better. You know, um, East Top came along and they are doing a lot of good things at lower prices. Kong Sheng is coming out with some really good harmonicas. Um, and now we've got a, a, a Korean company, Dabel. And I've got a couple of their diatonics, and I'm very impressed. So, I mean, there are a lot more choices now than there once were at a variety of price points and um, overall pretty good quality. I mean, there's still, you know, junk out there. Um, and you have to be careful to know, you know, what, what to get, especially for beginners because they have no idea. You know, and they may buy the, you yeah. know, the junky stuff because it's cheap and then they have problems. Yeah. Uh, they will have a very hard time to, uh, to learn anything on a leaky instrument, you know. And it's not very yeah. enjoyable to, to play. Right. And often the chords are very out of tune. You know, I mean, quality, it's, it's not so much design that distinguishes a good harmonica from a bad harmonica. Sometimes it is. But it's more a matter of quality control. Right? You can put the same materials into manufacturing, but if you uh, um, make the comb, plastic combs too quickly, they will warp. You know, if you don't tune them well, you know, there's all these different things that can be taken care of, um, but aren't. And so they pump them out and sell them at a low price and the player will suffer as long as any, along with anyone listening. 
you can spend a lot of time fixing a, a harmonica and that's uh, something that uh, is getting you away from uh, playing music you know yeah yeah it's true although oh i was just going to say temperament is something i've gotten interested in particularly on diatonics i mean chromatics you pretty much want to stay close to equal temperament although sometimes i'll tune the fifths so that they're a little bit more natural, you know, two cents sharp, so that you get a more natural sounding fifth. That's about as far as I want to go on a chromatic. On diatonics, temperament really makes a difference. Yeah, because equal, mm. yeah, because you play right. more chords. And equal temperament does sound very harsh with harmonic chords. Uh, but as soon as you start to temper the scale to favor chords, you run into problems with, you know, melody notes not sounding with other instruments. So that's, I mean, and this has been going on for thousands of years. You know, the Greeks were battling with this back in the days of Pythagoras. You know, if you went around the circle of fifths and got back to your starting points, you were something like 24 cents out of tune. You know, that's the Pythagorean comma. I might be stating the number incorrectly, but the idea is there. And so, for instance, these harmonicas tuned in fourths. If you put them in equal temperament, I mean, everything's equally out of tune. This fourth sound kind of okay, but the third, that major third, is going to sound pretty horrible. No. So then you find a way to sweeten that third without making the fourth sound bad. And I'm kind of wrestling with that right now. You know, mm. so I'm I'm deciding the, the 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 comma into, well, tempering the third up a little bit, and then dividing an eight cent flat third into bumping each of the fourths two cents sharp. And I actually will model this with generated tones. Right, I'll generate the tones just with, you know, neutral sounds and then put them in a, in a sequencer where I can stack them up and turn them on and off to see, okay, do these sound okay together? And of course, it's never going to sound quite like that when you transfer it to the harmonica because of all of the harmonics. Plus, getting things to be exactly two cents sharp or flat, you know, it's a frustrating exercise on the harmonica because tuning changes... You know, the read it health will continue to change after you tune it, and of course, breath pressure has an effect. It seems that you are doing a lot of uh, harmonica customizations uh, yourself. To the extent necessary. It's like, I kind of hate doing that. Well, there are times when I enjoy it, but there are long, long periods where I avoid it, because, you know, who wants to be doing that, <laughs> you know, when you could be playing? Uh, But if you're playing it and it doesn't sound right, then you'd say, okay, I think I better adjust this harmonica, whether it's tuning or, you know, read profiles or whatever it is. Can you uh, tell us about your involvement with uh, SPA through the years? Yeah. Now, SPA has been going since 1963. It was founded as a local harmonica club in the Detroit, Michigan area. And a lot of the people who founded it were employed in the automotive industry and were people who had been enthusiasts for the harmonica bands of the 1930s and 40s. And there were players of chromatic, chord, and bass, and pretty much any other instruments, not even guitars, were even allowed, right? This was all harmonica. Uh, and diatonics weren't really looked on favorably either. And uh, they would have an annual meeting, a convention. At first, it was just sort of like a dinner. But then they started having performances, and it became like a, a four- or five-day convention, always in the Detroit area. And when I was first made aware of this, it just seemed so old-fashioned to me. Like, this is something your parents and grandparents did. You know, It's the kind of things teenagers slink away from 
because it doesn't seem cool to them. Right? Mm. And uh, that was my initial reaction to it. But then I started meeting some of these players locally here in the, in, in the San Francisco area. <clears throat> and they would sit around a kitchen table and read some pretty difficult charts you know, for all harmonicas. Sometimes they would have a thing where it would be like a Toots Tielemann solo that was in three-part harmony with bass oh. harmonica and chord harmonica. Like you know, super I, sex, uh, kind of yeah, thing. yeah, and I, you know, I walk in thinking, oh, I'm, I'm, cool. I'm, I'm so cool, and then I listen to these guys playing, I'm thinking, dang, <laughs> there's a whole lot I don't know, and this is like twenty some odd years ago, and um, so I first went to a spa convention in 1992, <clears throat> and I found that I could be accepted in both the chromatic camp and in the newer, younger diatonic camp that was still kind of looked on with suspicion by the older players you know because i played both instruments and just I, i could move easily in both worlds and so i kept going to these i missed a few years around 2000 <clears throat> but it was so much fun to be around so many other harmonica players and geek out on harmonica uh you know and there were people there who knew stuff about repair and customization there were people doing all kinds of different things with the instrument You know, uh, and some people who were just kind of, you know, amateur goof-offs, but many people who were playing at a very high level, whether or not they played professionally. And so it was pretty amazing to be part of that. And I started giving seminars. <clears throat> and then eventually I became part of the entertainment committee, you know, that hires entertainers and uh, the youth committee and the awards committee. And then at a certain point, Tom Stryker, who had served two terms as president, wanted to step back and gave me the job of recruiting someone to run for president. And everybody I approached ran away. <laughs> Nobody wanted that responsibility. Um, and then I was prevailed upon to run because, you know, there was nobody else. But there was one other candidate, but he was not well looked upon. And, um, and I was well known and well liked. And so somewhat reluctantly, I ran for president and won. It was the only time in recent memory that anybody could think of that there was actually a contested election. You know, usually whoever can be roped into the job gets the job. You know, this is volunteer organizations, right? You don't make money at this. I mean, you know, your way is paid and things like that. But it's not, you know, something that you're going to walk away with, with money from. Uh, <clears throat> so it's kind of a thankless job in that way. I mean, you get the gratitude of people, of course. Um, so I served a three-year term, and one of the people that I had tried to recruit, um, Michael Dieth, whom I'd seen at the uh, Kerrville Folk Festival in Kerrville, Texas, and they have a little harmonica teaching seminars there. And this is like this huge festival that runs for weeks, and it's mostly free. It's on a farm, you know, out in rural Texas, And very much a sort of a 1970s hippie vibe. You know, people you've never seen before will hug you and say, welcome home. <laughs> you know, and so this is something very different from SPA, but it's similar in that it's a nonprofit organization totally devoted to music. And in their case, it's more, it's, it's really a songwriters festival, although they, they characterize it as a folk festival. And I thought, Here's a guy with business expertise, expertise at running a nonprofit organization who can bring new ideas into SPA. But he was still busy helping running the Kerrville Festival and didn't want to get involved. But then we brought him in as secretary. 
And then when my term was expiring, and I'd actually brought him in as vice president, you know, I kind of stepped him in. And then, so he's now president. He's in the second term. So, I mean, that was sort of what I'd set out to do before I ran for president. But it, it took me part of my presidency to achieve that. Hmm. And uh, so, and Spa's in great hands now. You know, organizationally, he's got very capable people in all of the positions. Hmm. You know, I'm really pleased to see that. And I'm also happy to step back and, you know, be a seminar presenter and a performer and do all of the little committee things hmm. that I'm still doing. And so it's an annual, yeah. uh, Spa does two things, well, three things. One is it puts out a quarterly magazine, Harmonica Happenings. Um, you know, which is nice. It has uh, the, the annual convention that runs for about five days, sometime in August, early August, at which we have, you know, performances, both afternoon and evening concerts. We have seminars. Uh, we have uh, youth scholarship. That's the third thing I wanted to mention, you know, because we raise money for that to bring teenage performers up to the age of 21 to the convention and have them perform and just experience all of this wonderful stuff that goes on. You know, we have hallway jams, we have open mic, we have seminars, we have the teach-in that Joe Felisco organizes, where you have a, a ballroom full of teachers, yeah. each one sitting yeah, at a table. Yeah, and you experience that. You, know, you just walk around and say, oh, let me listen to this guy for a while. Oh, I want to ask a question. To the, you know, it's just free form. And that goes on for, I think, three days. And then we have the vendor room. And all of the major manufacturers show up, and some of them are sponsors. You know, they could be a gold or a silver sponsor and help support the organization financially, and sometimes the performers. Um, and so all the manufacturers are there of harmonicas, people making microphones, you know, special gear and equipment for harmonicas, you know, all, all kinds of different stuff. So you've got all these different harmonica-based experiences all in one place. Yeah. You know, and 500 har harmonica fanatics just kind of hyperventilating yeah, yeah. for 24 hours a day. I mean, any time of day or night, you can step out of your hotel room and somebody will be doing something. So it was uh, in Tulsa? Yeah. This year and then next year? It'll be in, uh, in St. Louis. St. Louis, yeah. Yeah. It's, we've probably been in St. Louis more than any other city. Uh, it takes a local harmonica club to help do a lot of the work. And St. Louis has a strong club. Um, Tulsa, it turns out, has a strong club. It also requires a hotel that is both affordable and has the facilities that we mm. need. And we've got that in Tulsa. We've got that in St. Louis, more than one hotel. We've been to Denver a few times, a few times in Dallas. Uh, it used to be always in Detroit for many, many years because that's where it, Now, Spa, when you think about it, a lot of time there's a local harmonica club that just does local things. Of course, why not? I mean, that makes sense geographically. I mean, now, of course, we have the internet. You can be, you know, you and I are talking between San Francisco and New York. Mm -hmm. You know, I have students in France and Australia, India, you know, and yeah. you have to figure out the time difference, but it's possible to connect in all kinds of ways. But at a time when it was all, you know, local people meeting face to face, clubs were really important. Uh, less so now, perhaps. But there are strong clubs in all of those cities, and they're also affordable. I mean, you're never going to see a spa convention in New York or San Francisco. No, it's way too expensive. It's way too expensive. You just cannot get the, the kind of rates for a Yeah, because hotel. In, in Tulsa, at the, at the hotel, uh, you, you booked um, the whole hotel almost was uh, full of uh, participants. Pretty much, yeah. We need a hotel with enough rooms. And at, 
you know, and we've grown. You know, it used to be that we could do things in a smaller hotel, but that's no longer possible. So, you know, it, uh, your choices for capacity, for facilities, for affordability, and for travel are all important. You know, because you need something that's on a major highway for those who drive and is at an, at an airport that's not hard to get to, you know, with not too many connections. Uh, so all of those things play into that. Um, similarly with the Harmonica Collective, um, which is a little smaller teaching event that Jason Ritchie and I have been doing now for a few years. Um, and there are a lot of smaller harmonica events. There are getting to be more and more of them, um, where it's just, you know, two or three days, you know, three or four or five teachers and very concentrated on just teaching. You know, we don't have all of the other stuff going on that you would have at spa. I was going to say, John Gindick has been doing his harmonica jam camp for many years. And it's a small number of people. Um, and I've taught it a few of them years ago. Um, and he was kind of the pioneer of the smaller harmonica teaching event that's usually diatonic-based, very much uh, blues-based as well. And, um, you know, John has a gift for teaching beginner to intermediates. But I think a lot of people experience his teaching as beginners, um, and when Jason and I got talking about this, we felt that we wanted to do something more for the intermediate to advanced player and began to plan out the format and we decided, okay, we'll call it the harmonica collective. And he'd done some earlier things called rocking in the Rockies, rockers in the Rockies. So they did around Denver, um, collaborating with Paul Davies, who's also the entertainment director and a former president of spa. But Jason and I started bouncing ideas off one another, and we got the idea to do this thing. At the time, he was confined to the state of Indiana. Um, you may know, and Jason makes no secret of this, that he is in, at times come into trouble with the law. Um, partly related to his other problem with addiction. And um, so he was by terms of his parole, confined to the state of Indiana. So we, we were doing it in Indianapolis, which actually is a pretty good town in that there were inexpensive hotels near the airport. You know, it's a relatively accessible place. We could afford it. Um, he wasn't always happy with the quality of available musicians. Um, mm. So we did it there for a few years, and then he moved to New Orleans. <clears throat> so we did one in New Orleans last year, and... We did it in a nightclub and not in a hotel, which meant that teaching two classes simultaneously wasn't always that easy because of the sound separation problem. You know, doing it in one of the fabled New Orleans nightclubs was brought plenty of atmosphere, but again, hotel costs are a problem. Um, but what we do is we will have four to five teachers, whom we call expert guides, and each one will teach two or three subjects. And we split the group of, you know, roughly 30 people up into two smaller groups so that you have more uh, ability to interact with individuals. 
And so each, um, each expert guide will teach each subject twice, once to each group. And sometimes we've even done three and four groups, depending on the size of the uh, enrollment. And so we have classes, then we also have jam sessions. And um, we also, at the same time, because inevitably we're going to have people who come to an intermediate to advanced event who are not intermediate to advanced. You know, they're closer to beginner level or maybe at beginner level and they start hearing what's going on in these classes and their eyes kind of widen and they, oh my gosh, I'm in way over my head. So we always have at the same time what I call the well of knowing. I like coming up with these names for things where it's just a free form um, sort of sidebar where people can just go and ask questions, sort of like a diagnostic or, you know, remedial thing. Um, <clears throat> So that's a little less formal. And then we also have things like an auction and raffle. You know, we get donations from manufacturers for different prizes. Uh, so this is kind of what we've come up with. And it's gotten a reputation for, you know, high level, high quality uh, teaching. And we're doing one in Sanford, Florida in March. And uh, who are uh, the experts uh, this year? Well, this, year? Okay, so this, this coming one, it's going to be Jerry Portnoy who's one of the you know, senior blues harmonica players yeah. nowadays. I mean, he, he played, yeah, right. I mean, he was, he was with Muddy during the latter part of Muddy's career. He's played with Eric Clapton, worked a lot with Duke Robillard in, in the interim. And so he's going to be sort of the traditional end of things. And he is a great teacher. A lot of great players are not great teachers. The two things don't always come in the same package. But with Jerry, you've got both. Um, so I really look forward to, uh, to him. We've, of course, got Jason, who has forged a whole new approach to blues and blues rock harmonica. Mm. One thing that people often don't know about Jason is that he's also a jazz head. You know, yeah. it doesn't always come out with playing, but he is a very serious jazz listener. Mm. Um, and, you know, it finds its way into his playing, but not in obvious ways. And, you know, plus he's got such just a great gift for communication, both as a player and as a teacher. Um, we've got James Conway out of Chicago. And James is a really interesting guy in that he grew up in an Irish family. You know, they would take vacations in Ireland and he's very steeped in traditional Irish music. You know, he plays the penny whistle and the boron, the hand drum that uh, are both traditional in Ireland. On his harmonica playing, he can play all of those traditional tunes, you know, adapted to the harmonica, and which is something that is done traditionally in Ireland. Um, but at the same time, growing up in Chicago, he heard players like Chicago or like Sugar Blue playing on the high end of the harmonica, doing all that fast stuff, and he kind of combined that with the idea of you know fast Irish reels on the penny whistle. So he's come up with this hybrid mm, of Chicago blues and traditional Irish music. You know, and he plays guitar, he plays baron, he plays um, whistles. So he's you know, kind of a multi-instrumentalist, but a, you know, a really fine harmonica player. And then rounding it out, we've got uh, Katrina Sturton. And Katrina is a Canadian. She's a singer-songwriter. Her original uh, musical activity was playing bass in an all-girl sort of indie pop quartet that made records and toured a lot in Canada. And, you know, they still have sort of a legacy following, uh, but also was playing like blues harmonica from the age of about 15. 
And she studied with Carlos Del Junco. She studied with um, Jason, which is how I first became aware of her. She studied with D. Carp. And she's someone who plays rack harp while playing guitar, while playing fiddle. She plays fiddle and, and harmonica simultaneously. Uh, harmonica is not the biggest part of what she does, but she plays really well. Um, she's used to touring as a solo artist. You know, she'll get in her car with her guitar and amplifier and fiddle and harmonicas and a bass drum, <laughs> which she actually plays with the back of her foot. Um, and we'll tour you know, all through like the eastern part of the continent, you know, from sort of northern Ontario all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico uh, as a solo act. And she's also into like um, uh, meditation and into like the details of crafting a performance. Mm. So, I mean, she can teach on the harmonica something. She teaches something like 300 beginners a year at home in Ottawa. And, you know, she can play at an advanced diatonic level. She can communicate on a very simple level. And she's been, she's gone from being a harmonica collective student to being one of our adjunct teachers, you know, in the, the sort of the beginner pool to now being one of the expert guides. A variety of uh, amazing uh, experts. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, in the past, different, you, uh, point of views. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a nice combination of different different players. You know, in the past we've had uh, Mitch Cashmar, we've had P.D. Gazelle, um, we've had Magic Dick, um, we've had Richard Slay. You know, who's most both a masterful player and a great uh, harmonica technician. And he's he's been teaching more with um, with John John Gindick of late. R.J. Mitchell. You know, we've had a lot of really great players over over time. Uh, Ross Guerin. I don't know if you're familiar with Ross. Yeah. You know, and he's, he's in Los Angeles. He actually came to me for, for lessons when he was 15, before he went to music school and moved to Los Angeles. You know, and he, he works as a keyboard player, but he's also been playing a lot of bass harmonica with people. He plays chord harmonica, chromatic diatonic. Again, he's one of those multi-instrumentalists. He's a trained composer. Well, you know, so he has yeah. the ear to be able to do a lot of really interesting things in a lot of different contexts. You know, which I really am glad to see in harmonica players. Because so often harmonica players kind of learn by ear without harmonic knowledge, you know, without co compositional knowledge. It's more like absorbing a tradition um, without really having the underpinnings to move it forward creatively. Mm. You know? And so when I see a harmonica player who combines all these different elements and starts coming up with really creative stuff, I'm really happy to see that. And Ross is one of those people. He's not that well known in the harmonica community, but I think that his, uh, his profile will rise. No, and he's not with us this year, but I'm just enthusing about some of the people that have been part of the harmonica collective in the past. And where can we uh, sign up for the, the classes? Well, the, the easiest way is to just go to harmonicacollective.com and you can see who the expert guides are. You can see what the venue is like, some advice about travel and accommodation, and then there's a link where you can just click to uh, go to eventbrite.com and, mm. and register. You can register for the complete event or for individual days. One of the things I've noticed at the event is, and I've had to sort of figure out how to, create, uh, to, to adjust the schedule, is that on the third day, you see people kind of walking around holding their heads like, oh my gosh, my head's going to explode. 
you know, there's just so much information being imparted. Mm. So now I'm trying to get all of the expert guides to teach the heaviest topics early rather than late, right? When people have fresh minds mm. that are not yet filled with all of the stuff that's going on and then go, go to kind of the easier stuff later in the event. So you don't have such a, 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 a difficult time <laughs> retaining yeah. all of the information. It can be a lot, uh, but uh, they would have time to process during the year. No? Yes, but if you, if you feed too rich of a diet, at a certain point, people are going to fill up and they're going to shut off and whatever happens after that point, they're just not going to remember. So you have to kind of adjust the, the flow of ideas and information so that people don't get overloaded. You know, they'll walk away with enough to keep them very busy, but not too much to where they're, you know, they're just going to lose some of it. So, you know, we're still adjusting the event to, to, to be the optimal experience. Thank you, Winslow, again for being today on the podcast. Yeah. Well, it's been a lot of fun, Ivonik. I appreciate uh, your uh, reaching out to do this. And thank you, everyone, for listening to this uh, episode today. I encourage you to check out Winslow website at winslowyoksa.com. And if you are interested to try new practice routines, exercises, new chromatic harmonica techniques, or you would like to learn how to improvise, I strongly suggest again to go to a harmonica studio website and try a free trial. I think you will like it. And if you don't, you can still cancel within the trial period. I'll be back for a new episode soon. Take care. Have a great practice. Thank you.